When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brandspark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Today, the Florida State House of Representatives passed a bill that prevents colleges and universities in Florida from spending any money on anything that promotes diversity, equity and inclusion. The state Senate already gave this bill the green light. So now it heads to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who will undoubtedly sign the thing. Now, if you live in the real world and if the words diversity and equity and inclusion sound like positive things to you, what happened today in Florida feels like madness. But if you were a Fox News viewer, this might all make perfect sense. It might even seem overdue. Let me take a step back. This is Christopher Rufo. He is now one of the people that Governor DeSantis has appointed to the Board of Trustees that oversees New College in Florida. That is a school that we on this show have done quite a bit of reporting on. It is a school that Governor DeSantis is essentially trying to make the test case for anti-woke education. Christopher Rufo is also likely the reason your conservative uncle wouldn't stop talking about critical race theory or CRT at Thanksgiving last year. Rufo is even the reason former President Trump became obsessed with CRT. In September of 2020, Rufo went on Tucker Carlson's show to not only make his case against CRT, but to literally tell Trump what he thought should be done about it. And I'd like to make it explicit, uh, the president of the White House, it's within their authority and power to immediately issue an executive order abolishing critical race theory trainings from the federal government. Thanks to reporting from The Washington Post, we actually know that former President Trump was watching Tucker Carlson's show when Christopher Rufo made that request. Three days later, Trump's budget chief sent out a memo demanding that no federal money be used for CRT. By the end of the month, Trump had issued an executive order to the same effect. But it wasn't just Trump who was listening. Christopher Rufo was on Fox all the time. He appeared so often that he converted a room in his house into a television studio, complete with professional lighting and an on-air light in the hallway so that his wife and his children would know when not to interrupt him. Fast forward nearly three years later, and Christopher Rufo believes he has won. Quote, conservatives must move the fight from ideology to bureaucracy. We've won the debate against CRT. Now it's time to dismantle DEI. DEI meaning diversity, equity, and inclusion. DEI is the new CRT. Get ready to hear about it this Thanksgiving. And that is why Florida will no longer allow DEI at its colleges. But this isn't just the work of Christopher Rufo. This is also the work of Fox News. Fox platformed Rufo and helped make CRT and, by extension, DEI, the right-wing buzzwords that they are today. As unfortunate as that is, if you care about diversity and equity and inclusion in society, as unfortunate as that is, it shouldn't be surprising. Because this focus on stoking grievance and division, that is Fox News's bread and butter. When you think back to the early 2010s, It is easy to just think of Donald Trump when you think of the rise of birtherism, the completely unfounded conspiracy that Barack Obama wasn't born in this country. 
Yes, Donald Trump was definitely obsessed with that conspiracy. But the platform that was his megaphone, the platform that has made that conspiracy theory a mainstream talking point, the platform is Fox News. And I'm starting to wonder myself whether or not he was born in this country. So it's not going away in your mind. Donald Trump, who we all know was born in this country. I just say produce the birth certificate, move on. I believe you're born in the United he, States. He could put an end to this if he releases so he the birth certificate. Put an end to it. He, he, and Lou right. Dobbs is right. Lou Dobbs, Lou Dobbs is right to raise the question, why doesn't he release it? It's not just the birth certificate. It's like this whole segment of his life that we know nothing about, what, what and he's bringing attention to it. What he's bringing attention to it. And who cares? He doesn't care if it bites where, where him. I mean, he just, this is what he where thinks. Is his college what, record? what if he has Barack Obama's real birth certificate? Oh, no. <laughs> and that's what got him the VP job. The blackmail. The bla- he's been blackmailing the blackmailed. Fox News has always leaned in on a very particular kind of story, something readily acknowledged by Fox News employees themselves. In a set of feature articles The New York Times published on Tucker Carlson last year, The Times noted that in the past few years, Fox has leaned harder into stories of, quote, illegal immigrants or non-white Americans caught in acts of crime or violence. Network executives ordered up such coverage so relentlessly during the Trump years that some employees referred to it by a grim nickname, the Brown Menace. This has been Fox News's mainstay for a long time, fear-mongering about the Brown Menace. But the person who took this fear-mongering and turned it into a professional skill was Tucker Carlson. You might remember that in June of 2020, in the wake of George Floyd's death and in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests that followed it, Tucker Carlson went all in on the Brown Menace. On one of his shows that month, he spent the first part of the show just listing all of the unarmed black Americans killed by police in the previous year and why the police said they killed them. Carlson made a huge deal out of how menacing these unarmed black Americans seemed to the police. On another night that month, Carlson ranted against Black Lives Matter protesters, saying this moment is, quote, definitely not about black lives. And remember that when they come for you. And what made what Carlson said that month so disturbing wasn't just that this was what the host of a major cable news program was saying, but that he was finding an audience for it. That month, Tucker Carlson's show broke the record for the best viewership numbers in the history of cable news. So stories about the Brown Menace are Tucker Carlson's whole thing. They have been Fox News's whole thing for a very long time now. And that, all of that, is what makes this news so perplexing. The New York Times has published a text that the Times alleges led to Carlson's firing. This is a text from Tucker Carlson to a producer. The Times reports that Fox News executives were made aware of this at the very end of their defamation negotiations with the Dominion voting systems. The text had been redacted in public court filings, but people close to the defamation suit disclosed the contents of the text to the Times. And the Times reports that once executives learned of this text, they made the decision to give Tucker Carlson the boot. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is the timestamp here. This text was sent on January 7th, 2021, the day after the attack on the Capitol. Quote, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching a video of people fighting on the street in Washington. A group of Trump guys surrounded an Antifa kid and started pounding the living bleep out of him. It was three against one, at least. Jumping a guy like that is dishonorable, obviously. 
it's not how white men fight. Again, it's not how white men fight. And then Carlson continues, yet suddenly I found myself rooting for the mob against the man, hoping they'd hit him harder, kill him. I really wanted them to hurt the kid. I could taste it. Then somewhere deep in my brain, an alarm went off. This isn't good for me. I'm becoming something I don't want to be. The Antifa creep is a human being. Much as I despise what he says and does, much as I'm sure I'd hate him personally if I knew him, I shouldn't gloat over his suffering. I should be bothered by it. I should remember that somewhere somebody probably loves this kid and would be crushed if he was killed. If I don't care about those things, then I, if I reduce people to their politics, how am I better than he is? Now, the idea that this single text is what Tucker Carlson was fired for is sort of tough to believe because it pales in comparison to the years of undiluted hatred and unvarnished racism that were core parts of his show, core parts of what Fox News does most successfully. So there is a lot to unpack here, and we are going to have some expert help in doing so in just a second. But before we do, I want to play one more thing for you. This is video obtained by Media Matters. It's Tucker Carlson describing his feelings for the Dominion lawyer who deposed him in the defamation case. The amount, uh, it was so unhealthy, the hate, thank you, Teresa, the hate that I felt for that. I mean, thank you, Tucker. I, I, How never, did you not? I, well, I never feel that way, you know, because I don't put myself, I don't want to feel that way. I think it's wrong. It's bad. It's totally bad for you to feel that way. But that guy, I mean, he triggered the out of me. It was so unhealthy, the hate I felt. It's totally bad for you to feel that way. So said Tucker Carlson. Joining us now are Eddie Glaude, chair of the Department of African-American Studies at Princeton University, and Jamel Bowie, New York Times opinion columnist and co-host of the Unclear and Present Danger podcast. Thank you both for joining me tonight. Professor, how do you square what Carlson and Fox News have done to America mm-hmm. with his very clear acknowledgement that hate is cancerous? when it comes to himself and his own body. It's almost a kind of distillation of the work that mobs do in attacking scapegoats. So imagine the people who participate in a lynching. Imagine them individually as persons who think of themselves as decent, Mm -hmm. but getting caught up in the frenzy of the mob and suddenly find themselves bloodthirsty. Mm And the scapegoat, remember, works as a way to consolidate a sense of fragmented identity. That's too academic. What do I mean? (laughs) When there's a sense in which people feel a sense of terror and panic about who they are, when the incoherence of America makes itself known, there's a need for the scapegoat, Mm -hmm. the violence of directed towards the other, whether it's black people, whether it's immigrants, whether it's gay people, whether it's women, women, right? So that scapegoat then becomes the basis for a sense of coherence, a sense of identity, a sense of community. And in the midst of the violence, there could be a tinge of guilt. Mm -hmm. But this is the workings of the mob, and the mob does what it does. And Tucker Carlson does what he does, and Fox lives another day. Jamel, um, the the I, I don't want to call it 
reflect, it's not self-reflective, but there's something <laughs> happening in both these uncensored moments on off camera that Media Matters has uh, has gotten a hold of and the text themselves. Um, it's not self-hatred. It's an acknowledgement that what is happening to him and the way that he's thinking about things is poisonous. And yet he still needs to double down on his superiority. When he talks about that, when in the text, he's, he's adamant that white men don't fight like this, that if, that if, that if he enjoys the blood sport of it all, then he's no better than the Antifa kid who's getting the living crap beaten out of him. How did you, how do you understand this correspondence? I, I think I see it in similar terms to Professor Gloud and I, the, for me, the, the key the key thing is his statement that this is not how white men fight, which as a parenthetical, you know, thinking about mob violence in American history, thinking about the history of lynching, it, it you know, just may well be. But that fact check aside, it's clear that Carlson uh, imagines his whiteness to be something of an ennobling characteristic. And so it it. it causes him deep psychological distress when he is confronted with the reality that it is not, that he is not actually some better kind of person whatsoever. And he has to sort of quickly rationalize that. Um, having said that, I, I also want to say that part of me, you know, part of me wants to go down this road of um, psychoanalysts of Tucker Carlson, but part of me also recognizes that he is very much a cynical operator. We know that he uh, was not a, actually a fan of Donald Trump, for example, said derogatory things about Donald Trump, um, very clearly sees his audience as, for lack of a better term, a bunch of rubes. Um, and looking at his transformations over the course of his career, you can make a very good case that he just says what he needs to say, depending on the audience he happens to have. And that, to me, is also part of this story, that this is a profoundly cynical person um, weaponizing really the worst impulses that we have for his own self-aggrandizement as a television personality and for the agenda of his employers, which is um, uh, upper income tax cuts and strengthening the power of large corporations and the very wealthy in our society. I, I, I do want to place him as a figure in history, though, Professor, because he represents so much of the inheritance of, of, <laughs> of America on the topic of race, right? This idea of white nobility and white gentility has been used since slavery times mm -hmm. to justify violence against, against people of color. And Tucker Carlson is no different in that attitude than white people were in the 1700s. And I think it shouldn't be shocking, but it remains shocking to me. And I think it's worthy of calling it out when we see it. The idea that the day after January 6th, right. when a largely white mob attacks the Capitol, and this man is drawing a line saying, this isn't how white people fight. Well, yesterday, the day before he wrote that text, we saw how white people fought. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the past is never past. That's Falkland. Was was never was. And so what do we see? Uh, we see this kind of through line. Uh, we can trace the Great Replacement Theory back to 1790, the first Immigration Act, which establishes access to U.S. citizenship for white people only, when whiteness hasn't even been consolidated as a category. 
immigration law shows us this. Take us back to 1919 with Madison Grant's book, The Passing of the White Race. 1920, Lothrop Stoddard's book, you know, The Rising Tide of Color Against White, the World White Supremacy, right? And then how that's connected to the French writers of Renaud Camus, who writes The Great Replacement. And before him, that's 2012, before him, uh, Jean Raspel, you know, The Camp of Saints, that's 1973. All of this stuff around whiteness has everything to do with the tricky magic necessary, right, to maintain this illusion Mm -hmm. that somehow white people carry with them a sense of superiority, which means that they should be valued more than others. And Tucker Carlson sits in that sweet spot and Fox exploits it. You know, Jamel, as the professor so brilliantly says, the exploitation of on behalf of Fox of all of this cannot be ignored, right? And we started this segment talking about what's happening in Florida with Ron DeSantis, the mainstreaming of anti-CRT, anti-DEI, the Republican Party basically taking its orders in some ways from Fox News is a phenomenon that's shaping American life today. And I wonder if you think, well, what you think of that and also the degree to which um, the ouster of, of Tucker Carlson has any is a cause for any sort of introspection on the part of Republicans who parrot this garbage and make it law. I doubt there will be any cause for introspection among Republicans because of Tucker Carlson's ouster. I think there may be because of the fact that this crusade against DEI and CRT or what have you, which always just seems to be some sort of um, a term of abuse for sort of integration, um, this crusade against that doesn't actually seem to be resonating with American voters very much. That Again and again, when you ask voters, like, do you think your kids should learn about slavery in school? Do you value diversity in schools and in the workplace? Americans say yes. Um, how Maybe this doesn't necessarily filter down entirely to their political commitments, but it does suggest that like the Republican obsession with this may not be paying the kind of political dividends that they hope. And Ron DeSantis's recent decline as a presidential candidate might be evidence of that. So if there's any cause for introspection, and again, I highly doubt we'll see much, it's going to be because this stuff isn't really working the way they may have hoped it would work to uh, win elections. And just to not to not to not to repeat repeat myself too much, but I also think it's it's worth saying that part of the goal of this, talking about what Fox's interest, talking about the Republican Party's interest, part of the explicit goal of this is to take people's uh, salience and re- remove it from the real questions of education, adequate funding for schools, making sure teachers are well qualified, mm-hmm. making sure that um, there are there is educational infrastructure that can uh, can treat all students equally, redirecting people's anxieties and, and, and worries away from that and towards a kind of imaginary enemy kind of imaginary group of enemies that are trying to put you down and denigrate you. And the people who benefit from this, um, as is always the case, are, for example, the people who seek to uh, make money on privatized schools, the, the, the very wealthy and the, and the corporations and the owners of capital who have a vested interest in, uh, in siphoning wealth from 
public coffers. And so I also think it's, it's, again, important to maintain that perspective as well, that this isn't just sort of an expression of prejudice. It's also like a deliberate political strategy to divide people for very cynical reasons. Well, right. It's a snake eating its own tail on that uh, front. Eddie, Professor Eddie Glaude and Jamel Bowie, um, I'm sorry we don't have the entire hour to dedicate to this. It's a privilege to have both of you on the program. Thank you for your time. We have a lot more to come this evening, including the Kremlin calling this explosion an assassination attempt against Vladimir Putin. Plus, Donald Trump threatens to skip at least the first few debates in the 2024 primary season. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? And for who? That's coming up next. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. The Republican National Committee has announced that there will be at least two presidential primary debates for the 2024 cycle. The first one will be held in Milwaukee this August, and it will be hosted by Fox News. The second debate is set to take place at the Reagan Presidential Library in California. Now, the RNC hasn't yet decided which news organization will be co-hosting that debate, and it could be anyone. It could be Newsmax. Who can know? Whatever network the Republican Party chooses, those debates may very well end up being kind of a letdown for GOP voters. Here's the lead from NBC News this week. Former President Donald Trump may skip the first Republican debates this summer. That's according to people, quote, aware of his thinking. So the current frontrunner for the Republican nomination skipping out on the debate process seems like a bad thing. Right? On the other hand, it means we might all be spared from this. from everything I see, has no respect for this person. Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of the United States. No puppet. It's pretty clear. You're the puppet. Jeb wants to be, he wants to be a tough guy. He wants to be a tough guy tonight. One second. No. I didn't want to, Donald, you cannot take. More energy tonight. I like that. I was asked the question. He referred to my hands. If they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee you. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account Only Rosie O'Donnell. She doesn't have the look. She doesn't have the stamina. She's got a beautiful face, and I think she's a beautiful woman. That was locker room talk. Uh, I'm not proud of it. Are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups. What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a name. White supremacists and right proud boys. Proud boys. 
stand back and stand by. So what does it mean for the Republican Party that their current front runner doesn't want to face any of the other candidates in the race? And is that bad for democracy or is it good for democracy or at least good for actual people in a democracy? I will ask former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki and Politico's Jonathan Martin those very questions and many, many more coming up next. Stay with us. Here's a headline from Politico, quote, the DeSantis people are rookies. Even Trump critics say he's running circles around DeSantis. Despite the legal turmoil surrounding him, Donald Trump has been methodically undercutting Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. He's been snatching up congressional endorsements. He's been blasting attack ads. And he's been basically dominating news cycles, somewhat even intentionally. Trump's campaign operation has shown an unusual level of organization and has appeared to chip away at his likely rival before that rival even jumps in the race. Now, to be clear, nothing about Trump, the candidate, has gotten more professional or organized. Anyone can take a quick scroll of his true social page to see that this is the same impetuous xenophobe that has been on center stage since 2015. And maybe, if anything, he has gotten worse. But in a lot of ways, it makes it all the more astonishing that Trump's Republican rivals are now falling way behind him in the race to build a functioning national campaign operation. What does that say about the Republican Party and the outlook for the primary season to come? Joining us now to help us answer these questions are Jen Psaki, former White House press secretary and host of, of course, MSNBC's Inside with Jen Psaki, which airs Sundays at noon Eastern, and Jonathan Martin, senior political columnist at Politico. It's great to have you experts with me on all of this. Um, is there is there harm, Jen, in believing that Trump's organization or seeing Trump's organization to be more focused and strategic than it was in years past? Is there harm in acknowledging that fact to be a reality? Does it does it delude us into thinking the candidate himself may somehow be more potent and focused than he was in years past? Well, I mean, the bar is low, um, but I do think that if it's when it comes to who has a message mm-hmm. or a strategy of some version for running right now, Trump has a stronger message and a stronger strategy. He has also been impeached twice and has been indicted. But people seem in the Republican primary electorate to like him more than they like Ron DeSantis. Which is telling us a lot about the Republican electorate. And let's just hold that thought for a moment, um, Jonathan, because I I am I am. are, Are you surprised at the degree to which knowing how weak Trump is, knowing that this could be a moment when the field is open, there is not more strategic organization from other campaigns, that that, that Trump is easily outclassing everybody else on a pure strategic campaign operation level. Yeah, I'm not terribly surprised for a few reasons. Number one, he did bring in a few pros. Susie Wiles and Chris LaSavita have worked a lot of campaigns over the years. They know what they're doing. Uh, secondly, it's Donald Trump. He has a, a incredible command uh, of uh, attention, and he just gets publicity because he's Donald Trump. You add to that fact that he got indicted, and that gave him, at the very least, a sugar high, uh, Alex, within the Republican primary. And then. 
the last fact, which is his most formidable competitor, at least right now, has been largely focused on his legislative session in a remote state capital. And you add all those things together, I can't say I'm terribly surprised. To me, the big question is, where does this race wind up in the fall after we've had a debate or two? And is there still that kind of gap that you're referring to between Trump and everybody else? Well, I, I, yes. And when we say after the summer, we're also not just talking about after some debates. And we're talking about after potential multiple criminal indictments. It's the big asterisk when you're talking about oh, all yeah. these kind of things that Trump has in his favor. A robust right. campaign organization, donors, blah, 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 blah. He also could be the first president to have have multiple criminal indictments, multiple impeachments, and just the legacy of Donald Trump. That is true. Uh, but what is also true and is a baseline fact of all political campaigns is that if you are not winning, you cannot win unless you try to take out the guy or gal who is winning. Right. And nobody yeah. seems to yeah. want to take out Donald Trump yes. right now. So, yes, Governor DeSantis has been busy with the session, busy with his odd foreign trip. All those things have kept him busy. He has also run against Everything and everyone except Trump, Minnie, Mickey, uh, you know, women's yeah. rights. Yes. Uh, all of these issues that he has decided. People of color. People of color. The LGBTQ to take community. The fight to except for Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. And it's hard for him to take him out or beat him if he doesn't do that. If he's not trying to. I mean, to that end, um, Jonathan, there's yeah. uh, from Politico EU some very choice reporting about how lackluster Ron DeSantis has been on these foreign trips. I'll read an excerpt. Right. One UK business figure said Ron DeSantis looked bored and stared at his feet as he met with titans yeah. in British, indus British industry. A second business figure who was in the room said it was a low wattage performance and that nobody in the room was left thinking this man's going places. There wasn't any stardust. That is not the kind of reporting <laughs> you want out there if you're Ron DeSantis. No. No, and especially when you're doing one of these sort of foreign tours, which are meant to present you on the world stage, Alex, precisely the opposite of how he came off in that piece, which is somebody who can sort of go toe-to-toe -to -toe, uh, with other leaders around the world as competitors uh, and as compatriots. And so, it, look, I think if you asked anybody around DeSantis, they would acknowledge that the last few months have not gone to their liking. Uh, it doesn't mean that, that there's not an opportunity still yet, but obviously th this has been quite the jump. Uh, if you think about his moment after the midterms, in those few weeks where he was sort of the bell of the ball in an otherwise pretty tough year for the Republicans, and then you fast forward to today, well, that's been a pretty rocky six-month period, and um, uh, they're going to have to really sort of step it uh, into a different gear here once the governor does announce, uh, which probably will be here in the next few weeks. And I come back to those debates. Maybe Trump won't do uh, one or the, the, the second of them, uh, but I think we're going to have a lot more sense as to where this race is going because of what Jen just said. Either DeSantis can confront yeah. Trump on that stage and be an equal or best him on that stage and show to primary voters, I can take this guy out, or he can't. And I think we'll know a lot after that. Yeah. And then there's this sort of more existential question about the import of the debates in terms of mm. the actual election, right? We were talking about watching yeah. the old Clinton-Trump footage, <laughs> yeah. which yes. for some people, and maybe you, is like PTSD material. Yes, yeah. Do they matter? I mean, because I think a lot of people watch those debates and we're like, she's mopping the floor with him, and then he goes on to become the right. president. The country will watch and they'll think it's creepy, the what he's doing. And in fact, you know... They, and in fact, no. They matter if you are... Um, 
coming from behind and you have a moment that goes viral on social media and you can raise a bunch of money yes. from it. Or because you have a moment that goes viral on social media and people take a second look at you. Mm-hmm. But what Trump yeah, has said right. about why he doesn't want to do the debate, ignore all the stuff about Fox and the hosts and all of that. To me, what stood out to me was about him saying he has an insurmountable lead. Now, that may be this moment, to Jonathan's point, that that may not be the case in a few months. And also that you do debates when you're behind and you don't do them when you're ahead. That's not exactly true, but I think... It's reflective of the the point that unless you're behind, there's really that's when you want to take somebody on and prove yourself and get a second look from voters or have a viral moment, raise money. So the shorthand, I think, or the between the lines I'm reading, like it matters more for Ron DeSantis to show up to that debate. Even if he's debating with a microphone, he's got to show up. Exactly. For exactly the reason that Jonathan said. Now, Deron DeSantis has chosen to date not to attack Donald Trump. When you are on the debate stage, if you do not attack the guy who's ahead of you, that stands out. That does not look strong. Also, that's a moment when you are people are looking and seeing, can he take him on? Is he a better alternative? Is he as fierce as the guy we like? Um, And if you don't do that, people take notice. Does DeSantis know that he needs to attack Trump, Jonathan? Oh, yeah. I mean, I look, I think that, that that once you get in the fray uh, with a, a political actor uh, like Donald Trump, who uh, does not sort of adhere to the traditional uh, uh, boundaries of political decorum, I think he recognizes um, he's going to have to sort of scrap and he's not going to be able to keep any kind of polite distance from, from Trump. Now, the question is, how do you do that smartly? You don't want to get stra- trapped in the mud with him, uh, which some of the 2016 candidates famously did when they were running against Trump in that primary. So you want to keep some level, um, uh, slightly at least, above the ab- above the sort of ground, but you want to make darn sure that, that you're confronting him. And that, that is no easy task. How do you not stoop to his level, but still come out the victor in a head-to-head challenge against Trump in a, in a debate? It, it is not necessarily uh, that easy. But I think that those viral moments are going to be what last. It's not the hour and a half debate itself. It's whatever the moment is that stands out. You think about that famous episode, guys, where Rubio and Christie in New Hampshire in 2016 went at it. And that was devastating to Rubio because it got played over and over and over again online and on TV in the days after that. I think those are the kind of moments that DeSantis will need. Or, by the way, somebody else, a third candidate who has not had a moment yet, who could use one of these debates to really stay and just real fast, I had a column last week about Trump and his question about debates. He is wrestling with this, and he surveyed uh, the members of the Florida House delegation while they were having dinner at Mar-a-Lago a couple <laughs> weeks ago and said, one by one around the table, should I debate? And I, I think the majority at that table, guys, said you probably should because they're all going to gang up on you, and you may as well be there to defend yourself on stage that night. And so I think Trump ultimately will show up. That's the most Trump thing ever. Survey a bunch of people and then do the opposite <laughs> what do of what think? they suggest until you reverse yourself we'll again. Jen we'll and Jonathan, happens. thank you both for your time tonight. Lovely to see you, Jen. When we come Thanks, back. Thanks, guys. Russia, you get it out. Russia accuses Ukraine of trying to assassinate Vladimir Putin with an exploding drone at the Kremlin. Ukraine says that is ridiculous. We will get the latest on what Ukraine is actually doing coming up next. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. 
That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. This was the video that had the Russian government on high alert today. It's a shot of what appears to be a drone flying over the Kremlin before exploding near the dome of its Senate building. Now, the Kremlin claims, with no additional evidence, that it was a Ukrainian attempt to assassinate President, President Vladimir Putin before the upcoming Victory Day parade, which is happening in Red Square. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says Ukraine was not involved in this incident, adding, quote, we don't attack Putin or Moscow. We fight on our own territory. Russia, meanwhile, is accusing its adversary of doing the very thing Russia is now doing, which is ramping up its own drone attacks across Ukraine today. 21 people were killed after shelling hit civilian targets in Kherson, including a railway station and a supermarket. Ann Applebaum, staff writer for The Atlantic, just came back from Ukraine, where she got a closer look at how the country is faring. Sometimes, she writes, the war is described as a battle between autocracy and democracy or between dictatorship and freedom. In truth, the differences between the two opponents are not merely ideological, but also sociological. Ukraine's struggle against Russia pits a heterarchy against a hierarchy, an open, networked, flexible society, one that is both stronger at the grassroots level and more deeply integrated with Washington, Brussels and Silicon Valley than anyone realized is fighting a very large, very corrupt, top-down state. On one side, farmers defend their land, and 20-something engineers build eyes in the sky using tools that would be familiar to 20-something engineers anywhere else. On the other side, commanders send waves of poorly armed conscripts to be slaughtered. Joining us now is Anne Applebaum, a Pulitzer Prize winner and staff writer at The Atlantic. And it's great to see you here in America on set. Um, let me just first get your kind of reaction to the alleged drone attack by the Ukrainians um, in Moscow. So the Russians, having lied about so much for so long, really have no credibility. So whoever they think it is or whoever they say it is, nobody's going to believe it. Um, it is true that the Ukrainians have become interested recently in provocations, in trying to un under underline and, and um, emphasize some of the political divisions in Moscow. But this is a very strange event. I mean, why would, you know, why would you send a drone to kill Putin in the Kremlin when he doesn't live there? Um, in the middle of the night. So it's it, it, it seems more like it was something it, it reflects something going on in Russia. But and you pointed this out on Twitter th that it is an insane moment that, you know, at this inside the onset of this war, the expectation was Ukraine would just be destroyed in a matter of days. And now we're talking about Ukraine allegedly launching drone offensives. In oh, Moscow. the Russians have air defenses all around the Kremlin now. I mean, it wasn't supposed to be like the war, as you say, was supposed to be over in three days, six weeks at the outset. 
Um, and instead, we have the Russians, you know, fighting with one another, worrying about drones, um, faking or not faking. You know, it's now focused on themselves. I mean, it's now a it's now a battle inside Moscow over over the war. I I. I... I was riveted by your reporting from what's happening inside Ukraine. And we excerpted that passage because it's such a testimony to how nimble and unusual the Ukrainian fighting forces are. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about your sort of, well, your expectations going in and what you saw and how that squared with those expectations. So everybody expected this war, um, as the defense minister said to us, to be a war between a big Soviet army and a small Soviet army. And what we didn't realize is that over the last eight years, since 2014, the Ukrainians have completely remade their army, and it's to do with waves of volunteers. And so it's people from the tech industry, people who are working in Silicon Valley who came home, um, young people entering the army, and they have completely transformed it in all kinds of odd ways. So it doesn't work the way our army works. So um, we we went, for example, to a drone workshop. And a drone workshop is a room kind of the size of this one. Um, with tables and on the tables, there's kind of bits of glue and wire and there's a 3D printer in the corner and there's literally what look like styrofoam paper airplanes and they attach munitions to them and they send them over the border. At one point, they're saying these drones are used for photographing wedding ceremonies, well, right? Yeah, they're they're retrofitting these are the them? the kind of thing you order to, to photograph your wedding ceremony, but they've remade them into weapons. And that's, of course, the, the low end of what they do. Yeah. There's a much more sophisticated level as well. They use really the most modern, sophisticated military software that's ever been used, is being used right now in Ukraine. I mean, at the same time, they still have um, weapons left look like leftover from the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 80s. So it's a very big mix. Um, and it's, it's, I, think it's, I think one of the reasons why we found it so hard to predict what would happen yeah. is that it's not an army that looks either like what we thought it would look like, nor really like anything else. I mean, it's a really it's kind of partisan volunteer army you know, pulling in whatever it can from wherever it can. Um, and so far it's working. So resourceful, but not, not, not entirely undependent, which is to say entirely dependent in some ways on American support. Uh, uh, and yeah. how much fear did you sense that the Ukrainians were worried about America giving up on support for the war? I mean, we're, we've been talking about Tucker Carlson. We know that Zelensky called Rupert Murdoch or Lachlan Murdoch to try and gin up more so- enthusiasm among some of the fiercest critics of this war. I mean, is there a cogni- is there a recognizable sense that America is cooling in its ardor to fight this thing? So or I, don't to think, I don't think they're worried it. right now. I think the Biden administration isn't cooling at all. Actually, there was another aid, yeah. aid um, package announced today. But yes, they think long term. They think down the line. Um, of course, they're worried about the U.S. elections. Of course, they're worried about what happens if Biden loses. Um, and they're thinking about what could happen down the line. And they do spend a lot of time talking to Republicans, talking to critics. Um, Zelensky tries to find a lot of different places to speak, where he speaks at music festivals sometimes, and he speaks at universities, because he's trying to reach more than just, um, you know, he understands this is a democracy, and he wants to reach the public and not just the leadership. Uh, but they, they, they do know that, and that's why, I, but I think they accurately also understand that this is really a war not just for their territory, that it's a war for a way of life. It's a war for the respect for borders. It's a war for all of our rules about human rights. 
um, about laws of war, and he and he wants to explain that to people. And I think he, when he does do it, he's very convincing. Well, and I think you can feel, even from here, the passion, the sense of um, principle that Ukrainians are fighting this war with, and that is such a sharp contrast to the Russians who have been conscripted, who clearly don't want to fight this war, who have to be dragged into it and forced into it, a war for nothing and a lot of uh, the, uh, well— Presumably the eyes of Russians. Yeah, no, it's a clash of two systems. I mean, it's and as I said, it's not just a it's not just an ideological clash. These are these are societies that are organized in a different way. Um, and the, the Ukrainians would look like us in, in, in more ways than you would think. And that's all the more reason to keep reporting on what is happening over there. It is an important battle that is being waged and in an unusual fashion. Anne Applebaum, staff writer at The Atlantic, one of my favorite writers on all things international. And it's great to have you on set. Welcome back. And thank you for being here tonight. We'll be right back. That does it for us tonight. We will see you again tomorrow. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.